Recently, in the headlines, the Daily News publication had this headline for all to read. Now, it's apparent from the Daily News that they don't feel that God is in the midst of our world, it's especially seeing the chaos that was in San Bernardino and the, and the terrorist attack that took place there. And I get it that there's a lot of people asking this question. We're asking this question, and we're also in search for this uh, nebulous peace that's supposed to be there, peace for the world. Will it ever come? Is it here? Now, I understand that we're tired of platitudes. We're tired of just meaningless words. But my question this morning is, is it really true that God isn't fixing this problem? Is that really the case? Or is it possible that God has already fixed the problem, but we don't see the answer? Let me give you an analogy this morning that relates to this question and to this situation. Suppose with me that there was a great scientist and this great scientist was able to come up with a cure to cancer. And he was able to put it in a pill form. And as he was distributing this cure to cancer, every single person with 100% success was cured of their cancer. Can you imagine what the headline should read? It should read that my loved one that was good as dead is now with us, is alive. There should be rejoicing in the streets. There should be dancing. But let's just say in this scenario that people are still dying of cancer. They're dying of cancer because there are some that are out there that are saying, you know what, there can't be one way to be cured. That's an impossibility. That's too narrow-minded that there is only one solution to this cancer that I have. No, 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 I refuse to believe it. Now, if it was say, stated in the headlines, scientists aren't fixing this, would you believe it? You and I would say, no, 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 that's absurd. Why, why would you say that? There's a 100% cure that is available. See, my friends, a lack of faith in the solution does not negate the fact that that solution exists. It doesn't negate the fact that that solution exists. See, in the world today, there is a cancer. And the, and the Bible calls it sin. That's the cancer. It's the root of all pain. It's all the root of all problems that we see in our world. It's plaguing mankind. It's because of this cancer of sin that we see foster moms and dads tucking children in that are not their own biological ch uh, children. Why? Because of the destructive nature of sin with their own true biological parents. That's why that's happening. Why is it that there is Islamic jihad that's happening in the world. It's because there is a sinful view that Muslims can hasten the coming of the 12th Imam by jihad. Why is it that there are people that are stealing from other people? Why is it that they have that? Why do they do that? It's because of this sinful motivation from within that says, I need to put my needs above your own, and it's often driven by addiction. 
My friends, we live in a sinful, broken, and fallen world. And when we do, we will have pain and we will have a lack of peace. So here's the question. If sin is the cancer, the question is, has God provided a cure for that cancer? That's the question I want us to answer this morning. Has God really fixed this problem? I would like for us to answer that practical question this morning that we celebrate the birth of our Savior, and we're going to look for an answer in the Scriptures. And we're going to look in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to, uh, to 68 to 79. It's a passage that you may not necessarily naturally look for this kind of answer, but I assure you that the answer is in this passage. See, this passage was actually a prophecy. It was a prophecy that was given to a man named Zechariah. Zechariah was the father, soon to be father, of John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. He was born several months before Christ came into the world, and he was his cousin. Now, before we jump into the passage, I want you to understand the context of this passage, because it's really important that we understand this. The context is that the world back then was pretty much in chaos, just like the world that we live in today. The Jewish people were under this unbelievable religious oppression by the Roman government. And the Roman government had perfected, had perfected torture of persecution and ultimately death by crucifixion. There were people that were lined up on their streets coming into the city that were crucified, that had violated what the Roman law had stated. And certainly that breeded this atmosphere of, I am not going to mess with the Roman government. They were under this kind of oppression in that land. We are far from that. This is the environment that they lived. On top of that, the Jewish, Jewish people as a nation hadn't heard from a prophet from God for over 400 years. It was as if God had been silent and that God didn't believe in them anymore. That they, they, that they were all on their own. This is the environment in which they found themselves. Certainly, everybody in that day would say, yeah, I want peace, but I doubt that it can come. I really doubt that there is a solution. And they would have asked the question, is God really going to fix us? Is God really going to fix us? But then God spoke. He spoke to a humble man. A humble man that went into the temple every day to do his priestly duties and every day he would do that with his heart before God. Maybe he even cried out to God because we know that Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth had a heart for God and cried out for God. And all of a sudden, one day, God broke his 400 years of silence and he spoke to this man. And he used an angel, an angel of God named Gabriel. And Gabriel came to Zechariah and he said, Zechariah, you and your wife, his wife who was barren, are going to have a child. Now, nobody could really understand what that would have done possibly to Zechariah and Elizabeth unless you have suffered from not being able to have a child. You would understand that. 
Now, in normal situations, you would say, man, there should be great rejoicing. We're going to have a child. But you got to understand, Zechariah and Elizabeth were well past the childbearing years. It would be like a couple that were in their 60s getting this news, like, you are going to have a child. And you'd be like, what? What? And they received it. Zechariah received it with doubt. And the angel of God, Gabriel, spoke to him harshly. And he said this. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and be unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. God was on his mission and he was going to accomplish it. It was time. It was time for the Savior to come. What's interesting is that the angel also spoke to, uh, spoke to Zechariah and said what his son would do. He said that his son, he would be great. He would be great before the Lord. That he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, talking about the Messiah, before him in spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Can you imagine Zechariah getting this news? Not only are they going to have a child, but their child would be the forerunner to the Messiah. He would prepare the way. He would preach messages. He would help prepare hearts so that they were ready to receive the peace of God. Unbelievable. Now, Zechariah did remain quiet during the entire pregnancy. Now, that would be rather hard. Even if you guys aren't very good at communication, can you imagine going nine months without speaking? But that's exactly what happened with Zechariah. And after the baby was born, uh, Elizabeth was going to name him Zechariah because that's what you do in that tradition. Every firstborn son is named after the father. But that's when the Holy Spirit filled Zechariah. And for the very first time, he was able to speak again. And he said, no, his name will be John, just like the angel had told him. And then he proceeded to flow out. The words that flowed out of his mouth were a prophecy. They were a prophecy that predicted what John would do, but also what the Messiah was going to do. And this is what we're going to study this morning. So as we take a look, we're going to take a look at what he, what this Messiah was all about. But here's what I want you to see about John. John's job, and if you look in Luke 1, verse 79, you'll see this. This is going to be John's job. John will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's what he's going to do. That's the world in darkness, in the shadows of death. And he is going to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
See, John's job was to usher in the way of peace. It's not that John was the peace. He was to usher the way of peace. He was pointing to the Messiah. And in this prophecy, the first eight verses deal completely with the Messiah. Who this Messiah would be. What he would do. And in the last five verses, it talks about what John's responsibility would be in preparing the way for the Messiah. We're going to focus in this Christmas morning celebration on the first eight verses. John, Luke chapter 1, verse 68. We are looking at the promise of peace here. The promise of peace that's coming. Here's the first thing that we learn is that our peace would be our redeemer. Take a look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, this very first line of the prophecy is very significant because it reveals that the Messiah would be the Redeemer. He would redeem us. Now, that word redeem isn't exactly a word that we use all the time. Most of you people would use redeem in terms of coupons. I'm going to redeem these coupons. I want you to know this is far from that meaning. The word redeem actually means literally to set free by paying the price. See, it was used of those that were in the slave market, those that would stand on the stands as slaves, and they were just products. They were products, and people would come, and they would pay a price, and they would become their slave. They would purchase them. But if there was a redeemer, he would come and he would purchase them at his cost, but then set them free. What an awesome thing. This is the redemption that Christ is prophesied that he would do. We know in the writings of Paul after the death, burial, and resurrection that redemption had taken place. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 1.7. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Do you understand that he lavished this redemption? He lavished his grace by the shed blood of Christ because it was intentionally planned for by God that he would redeem us. This is the work that he would do by purchasing us out of the slave market of sin through his blood. That's the first thing we learn from this prophecy. Here's the second thing that we learn. We learn that Christ will be our strength. Take a look at verse 69. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, it's saying that he would come from the line of David, but he said he will be the horn of salvation. Now, you and I don't use the word horn in, in the way that they used horn in this context. Horn for the Jewish individual represented the strength of an animal. The strength of a ram was in his horn. And so he's saying that there is great strength in this salvation. Now, the word salvation is a picture of deliverance. Here's the idea that's being given here. The picture is that of an army that is about to be overrun by the enemy, but then the help arrives and the enemy is ultimately defeated. 
You and I are in this place that we are fighting a battle and we are hopeless. We are about to be overrun. But all of a sudden, at the right time, there comes a Savior, a deliverer for us. Now, for those of us that like to go to movies, we have different pictures in our mind of the hero sweeping in to rescue. Some of you are Star Wars nuts. The what I've seen this week is just crazy. People go out there with their capes and their flashing swords and all that kind of stuff. Now, I'll go see the movie. But I'm sure there's some great rescue scenes in there. But this is one of my favorite rescue scenes. Gandalf the White coming down to rescue the people. But I want you to know that better than any Hollywood depiction, there is a rescue that Christ performed by him coming as the Messiah. Do you realize that Ephesians chapter 2 says that you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins? We were good and we were as good as hopeless. We had no hope. But then Christ swooped in. And what he did on the cross, he did for us. And it says in the passage, because of his great love for us, he made us alive. See, this is what was being prophesied here before it actually happened that Christ would be that horn of salvation. He would be our great strength. We continue on in the prophecy. It says that he would also be the predicted one. Take a look at what it says in verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Do you realize that there was no secret to the Jewish nation about this coming Messiah? There was no secret because hundreds and thousands of years before this Messiah actually came, it was predicted. It was predicted that he would be a Jew and that out of the Jewish nation, there would arise one that would bless all the nations of the earth. If you don't believe me, read Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. It was predicted. It was predicted that he would be of the royal tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.10 gives us proof that it would be of the tribe of Judah. That he would be of the line of David. Look at 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 to 16. That he would be born of the city of David in Bethlehem. Micah 5 2. And if that isn't enough we're told in Isaiah 9 that he would be a child. And this is what it says. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and on his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. Hundreds of years before it actually happened. My friends, I can't think of any greater proof 
If you are doubting whether the Messiah is true, if you're doubting whether Christianity is true, how probable is it mathematically that you could have all of these prophecies that were given hundreds and hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years before the, 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 the appearance of Christ and for them to come true with 100% accuracy. There's not a prophecy that was given of the many. I only gave you a few in the Old Testament that haven't come true in regards to the Messiah coming. That's mathematically an impossibility for all of them to come 100% true if it wasn't for Christ. He defeats all odds. He is the predicted one. And you know, if that's not enough for you, you know we're told in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.9 tells us that God planned this before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time. Before he even created man, he knew that when he did, that man would rebel against him. And he knew in his love that he would have to provide a redeemer. He would have to provide the strong one. He would have to provide this for us. And he predicted it. This is our God. This is what we celebrate this Christmas morning. The prophecy continues. The prophecy continues and says the Messiah would be our rescuer. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemy and from the hands of all those who hate us. Now, the enemy here is not flesh and blood. Please understand that. The enemy here is the devil and his army. Ephesians chapter 6 describes this army as rulers of authorities, powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil that are against us. So he has a hierarchy of his army that is doing war against you and I. Now you say, well, what is his will? What is his mission statement? His mission statement is found in John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's exactly what's he, what he wants to do in your life. He wants to kill you. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to destroy you anyway, and ultimately, he wants you to go throughout this life. He wants you to reject the claims of Christ so that your soul is destroyed for eternity, that you would have eternal damnation. That's the will of the enemy. He hates you with every fiber of his being. We're told in, 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 in 2 Corinthians 4 that his goal and his method to carrying out his strategy, this is his strategy plan, is to keep you blind, is to keep mankind blind. He wants you to work, walk in ignorance. He wants you to walk in deception. That's his desire. And if that wasn't enough, part of his strategy, according to 1 John chapter 2, is to entice you in this world by the cravings of sinful man. He wants to captivate you by the lust of your eyes. He wants you to be focused on the boasting and the accomplishments of what you do in this life. That's what he wants for you. And he will do everything. That's his mission statement. That's his strategy. And that's what he is trying to accomplish in the world. And you look at that and you say, man, that's pretty ironclad. That's an incredible strategy. But our God's strategy is much better. Our God's strategy was to send his son as a little baby in a manger. 
and that he would grow up and he would live a perfect life. And he would point people to God and say things like, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. And he loved those that were, with, that were hopeless and without, that needed compassion, who were harassed and helpless. He knew that they were like sheep without a shepherd, and that is the compassion of God. He wasn't a warrior that tried to dominate people by violence. He didn't strap on a bomb and say, hey, you come and you believe in God or else. No, no, he did it through love. His message was an appeal to the heart and to the soul of man. And he loved him so much that he said, I'm going to show you the extent of my love. I'm going to show you the extent of my love. by I'm going to go to a cross. And I am going to die for you, a death that you deserve. No, I'm going to die. I'm going to bleed. And he did it. And then he was buried. And then he resurrected. This is what we're told in Colossians in terms of God's plan. Colossians 2 says that God's plan was to disarm the powers and the authorities. That's the satanic army. And he was to make a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. That's our God. That's our Savior. That's baby Jesus, our King. The prophecy continues, and he says he's the merciful one. Take a look at verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Now, notice what he says. He says, mercy promised to our fathers. Remember, it was promised, it was predicted that the Messiah would come. But it's all wrapped up in this thing called a holy covenant. Now, the word covenant means covering. It means a sense of protection. When Jesus said, take this cup and drink it in remembrance of me, it's a a picture of the new covenant. It's a picture of the new relationship. It is my protection over you when the blood of Christ covers your life and there is forgiveness of your sins. See, the idea here is that out of God's mercy, he was planning to give us a new relationship with him a very personalized relationship. It's not something I'm born into. It's not something that happens because I come to church and listen to a message or pray a prayer or sing a song. No, that doesn't create this relationship. What creates this relationship is actually twofold. I call it the divine marriage between man and God. It's man on one side and God on the other. And it's me saying, God, I am so sorry. I recognize what you have done for me, that you bled on the cross for me. I give you my sin. I give you my rebellion, and I submit myself completely to you because you are my king. And what God does on his end is he takes the sin because of the shed blood of his son, and he forgives the sins from the past to the future. And he says, you are now adopted as my child. Now, when I look at this new covenant, when I look at this new kind of relationship, I got to admit that it's a little lopsided. What does God get out of this? God gets all of my sin. He gets all of my problems, every offense, every thought that I've gone and violated God with. He gets it. He takes it upon himself. And what what do I get in return from God? God gives me his love. 
He gives me his forgiveness. He gives me eternal life with him. What an incredible exchange. What an incredible promise. Why would anybody reject such a gift? Why? This is our Savior. This is what he's done for us. And if that wasn't enough, the prophecy ends with an oath, a promise. He says, the oath that he swore to our, fathers Abraham, uh, our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, Zechariah finishes with a promise. And the promise was this that this gift of salvation would transform my life. It would turn me from selfishly serving myself all the time to now it says that we might serve him without fear. You know when there's no fear, guess what's in place of fear? Peace. Peace. That we might serve him in holiness in righteousness, before him all the days of our life, that we can do that. Friends, that can only happen when there is a transformation. And this is what's so beautiful about this promise. So on that morning, when the star was out, and when the shepherds were out in the field, the promise that the angel, when he came and made the proclamation, he was making the proclamation that salvation had come. This is what he said. He said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Can you imagine what it was like for Mary to hold divinity? in her hands to know that God's holy seed cultivated and, and impregnated that the, the egg within her and that divinity grew within her for nine months and now she was holding divinity she was staring right into the eyes of her salvation and no wonder it says in the passage that she treasured these things and pondered them in her heart God's mercy had been shown, his peace delivered. Now, I can only imagine the joy it was for Zechariah to have God speak the final words of this prophecy to his heart about his son. All of us want our kids to accomplish something. All of us want them to accomplish something. But this is the ultimate. This is what John would do. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. He would be a prophet. And you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. He would be a preacher. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercies of our God. Whereby the, sun, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And you are to guide our feet into the way of peace. He will point them to peace. That's what John would do. What an awesome thing. So we step back from our passage. And we come back to the original question. Has God really fixed this problem? We can look 
at the evidence that Dr. Luke wrote out for us. Dr. Luke was a scientist. He wrote things line by line so that they could understand. The problem of sin, which has been seen in our world by terrorism today, by theft, by murder, by selfishness, and all sorts of crimes, all of that God has fixed. He created a plan, a plan in which he would take care of the cancer of this world. And he did it by coming in and entering and giving a covenant, a new covenant because of the shed blood of Christ. And when we surrender our life to him, he gives us this beautiful, beautiful salvation. So do you know how to have this salvation? Some would say, you know, Steve, I... I, this is convincing. This is convincing to me, but how? How do you have that salvation? Well, here's the answer. You grab onto his hand. If you were in the midst of a fire, and the firefighter came in to rescue you, and he was able to, there's a gulf between you and the firefighter, and he reached out his hand. All you would have to do is believe that the firefighter was there to rescue you. You grab onto his hand and know that he will pull you to safety. This is exactly what God has done for you. He did the work. All you have to do is believe in what he did. Have you done that? Right now, I'd just like to take a moment to pray. If everybody would bow their heads with me. What I'd like to do is ask for those that would say, Steve, right now, I need that. I need that salvation. I, to be honest, I don't have the clarity that I need. I don't know where I would spend eternity with God. I don't have that peace in my heart. And I'm asking specifically that you would pray for me. If that's your desire, raise your hand, please. I want to pray for you. Lord Jesus, you know where we are. You know what's going on in our own hearts. Thank you for being a redeemer, our redeemer. Thank you for showing us your strength, for fulfilling the predictions, for rescuing us, for showing us mercy and giving us a new covenant and being, giving a promise of a new life. But Lord, right now, I'm simply asking that you forgive me of my sin. I really do want to surrender my heart to you. I want to believe in you. I do believe. I believe in what you've done on the cross. I believe that you rose again for me. And I want to enter into that covenant relationship with you. That you would call me your child. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. If you've done that today, tell somebody. One last word of encouragement. The last word of encouragement is for those of you, and that's many of us, who know that peace. I want to encourage you to share that peace with somebody around you. The other day I was running with my friend Don Adams. Don Adams is right over here. He's a firefighter, and that's his trade. And we were running, and we were passing a house where there's a bunch of barking dogs, and he says, help is on his way. 
And I'm like, help is on its way. I was confused. All I could hear were the dogs barking. But after a few more minutes of running, I could hear sirens. And the sirens were getting louder because they were getting closer to us. And obviously, when he said help is on the way, he heard the sirens. See, my ears are not one of his occupation, so all I could hear was the dogs barking. But what he heard was trouble, and that help was on its way. And it made me think about what we should be like in this life. You see, Don is a longtime rescuer. And when other people are running out of trouble, he's running into trouble. When other people are running away from the burning building, he's going towards the building, burning building. And that's the way that he is, because he's a rescuer. You and I are rescuers. The majority of people in this world have problems. We call them problem people. You all know who they are, don't you? And when problem people come around, a lot of people are like, okay, I'm running away from the problem. But what God has called you and I to do, because we have this peace, you run to the problem. Be an agent of peace. So we sing this last song. Let's remember that God is our Emmanuel. We're rejoicing, but we are agents of that Emmanuel. This is going to be the final song after the song is over. We have no comments today, so you'll be dismissed. But So we're going to just worship God. I do want to encourage you, come back tonight. Bring a friend. We want you to just enjoy tonight. The children are going to be doing a little bit more than they did this morning, so it's going to be a special time. We're going to have a cookie reception afterwards, so it should be a lot of fun. I will tell you, I've decided that this is a full family event. What that means is that there will be, I want all the child care workers in here. They work so hard, and they often miss everything. But it's okay. We're going to be singing. There's really not going to be a long message tonight, but I think you will enjoy all the things that are going to take place tonight. So all the family, all children, infants included, we're just going to celebrate together. So let's close with this last song. <laughs>